Now that everything's working. Welcome to Surreal Politics for this January 1st of 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. Stage one, episode 40, undemocratic. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, in Colorado and then in Maine, Donald Trump has been removed from the ballot on the grounds that he waged an insurrection against the United States on January 6th of 2021. In the event these decisions are allowed to stand, Trump will still almost certainly uh, obtain his party's nomination for the presidency. He would still, however, be excluded from the ballot come the general election, at which point the people of those states will have only Joe Biden to vote for, at least so far as viable candidates are concerned. Given recent electoral outcomes, the wrongful taking of just a few electoral votes may very well swing the outcome, and that, of course, is the whole entire point. It is perhaps a bit cliché to note that the Democrat Party bears its name with no small degree of irony. They are adept strategists hell-bent on the destruction of the United States and its dominant ethnic components. They care not for the principles they espouse, but only for the power to cause the damage they are driven to inflict, spouting off faux-high-minded idealism about the founding fathers in the Constitution. They disarm and silence the populace, deprive them of the last remnants of the constitutional order, and make cruel masters of liberated slaves. Their devotion to protecting democracy extends only so far as it is defined as Democrat rule, whether this be accomplished through unrealistic and dangerous campaign promises of utopian equality and abundance, suicidal mass immigration, criminal theft under cover of darkness, or brazen televised stunts like these. Their singular drive is to impose their will upon the population. They allow nothing, the least of all, the will of the voters to stand in the way of this pursuit. Such malfeasance leaves serious men in a difficult position. It is a very serious crime to advocate the violent overthrow of government, of course. United States Code Title 18, Section 2385 reads, Whoever knowingly or willfully advocates, abets, advises, or teaches the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying the government of the United States 
or the government of any state, territory, district, or possession thereof, or the government of any political subdivision therein, by force or by violence, or by the assassination of any officer of any such government, um, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both, and shall be ineligible for employment by the United States or any department or agency thereof for five years next following his conviction. Yet such schemes raise the question about the origins of state power, if it is true that they, quote, derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, and the consent is found to be lacking, then the powers wielded are not justly derived, and, the, and one lives in a state of anarchy, fundamentally. There is no government to speak of without a legitimate conference of authority, and this legitimacy is in all cases a matter of opinion. Whether, whatever the flaws of a democratic government, it has the quality of acceptance in near all cases. One who seeks to seize power against the popular will knows he will meet resistance from more than half the population, and smaller percentages than this have brought down the most powerful governments in mankind's history. Even in those cases where the election was won through fraud, such as in 2020, the mere uncertainty of the matter will typically diminish the will to resist sufficiently to maintain control. But if on the heels of such a fraud, after four years of watching the thief squander the nation's resources on foreign accomplices, wild and brazen public acts of corruption are arrogantly advertised on the television, and the population is deprived their choice of ruler with all the certainty of sunrise and sunset, only force remains to quell rebellion. A man who endorsed the rebellion, whatever its legitimacy, would surely be prosecuted, and I'd, of course, commit no such offense myself. But I might note my lack of ideas as to what other options a decent man would have in that case. To sit silent as his country was destroyed and with it the future of his children must haunt his thoughts with self-condemnation at his own cowardice. He might prefer to die in just such a rebellion if only to rid himself of the intrusive thoughts. To face death, certain he had been worthy of his life, to know that he had done all he could for his family and his nation. He might consider fleeing, should that option not be closed off to him. This is not without appeal, of course, at least to the extent there may be viable alternatives elsewhere. But for an American, no foreign land holds the same promise this one once did. To speak freely and carry a weapon sans the intent of an outlaw was a unique and very appealing feature of this country not so long ago. This is not so much the case anymore, and what little remains of these qualities is at all times being placed in greater peril. He might be justified to consider these relics of a bygone era, to accept that the best he can hope for now is to mind his P's and Q's in a place where his means of defense are quite limited, but the government will at least not seize his child for sexual experiments. To live in a place where war is considered only to protect the interests of the country and not as a perpetual state in service to blackmail and bribery. But then there is the question of facing just such a war against his former homeland. If those who seize power are not stopped at home, they are unlikely to cease their meddling abroad. In what is, in what is most commonly referred to as America's Civil War, and may perhaps soon to become known as the first of several, it has been said that brother fought against brother. In a world made ever smaller by wires, radio frequencies, and aviation, the prospect of such fratricidal conflict need not be limited to the affairs of one continent. Flight, then, might seem all the more viable, though. 
the prospect of conscription at the hands of the crooks being made to wage war on behalf of those who robbed him of his vote and destroyed his way of life might be too much to bear. If he must fight, he might do well to join a foreign army before being made a slave soldier on more familiar soil. We should not have to consider such prospects to put our minds through these exercises as perhaps the greater crime than the theft itself. A decent man wants to obey the laws of his country, wants to be loyal to his government. Deprived of the opportunity to live this way in good conscience, he is deprived of all good options. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you tell, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Love to hear from you tonight. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, You know, before I played the intro music, I was just talking about a little bit of a a technical thing we did over here. You know, I've been, uh, a lot of you know, I've been using an application called, um, uh, I've been using an application called XSplit Broadcaster to, uh, to do this show, well, to do my shows before this was a thing, Surreal Politics. I've been using XSplit Broadcaster for many years. It's a commercial application uh, a lot of streamers use something called OBS or open broadcasting software. And uh, I had always preferred XSplit. There are features that I like about it a lot better. And I kind of like the idea that, well, I paid for this. I'm a professional broadcaster. I have a professional broadcasting application. And all those amateurs are using the free program, but not me. I'll tell you something <laughs> that really ticked me off. You know, I've been doing, you guys have heard me talk about it a little bit on here. You've seen it if you're subscribed to the channels. You know, I've been doing some of this game streaming stuff, you know. And a few days ago, I was streaming, and the XSplit broadcaster was going to like 100% CPU to stream the game. And it doesn't need to do that at all. And I have many times, you know, I, I have kept on purchasing equipment and purchasing equipment and, and upgrading things and trying to go out of my way to, you know, make this, uh, this setup work because I'm running into resource limitations while I do the show. And it, and it had not occurred to me to change out the software. I'm like, I've got the top-notch software. There's no way this is the problem. And so, but when I had this problem the other day, I was like, I'll, let me try this, you know, this OBS thing. And it's night and day. I mean, it's it's completely. I mean, it's I'm using half the CPU, and and half of the the graphics card. You know, I've got in this computer that I'm broadcasting from. I have a, a, a an NVIDIA RTX 4070. It's a very high end video card. Okay, it's got you know 12 gigabytes of video RAM. It's it's you know it's not a 4090, but it's it's up there. It's a lot more than I should need to do this show and play a video game at the same time. And so when this, you know, problem struck, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I'm not even going to contact the tech support of these people. I've, I've had it, you know. And so we had a little bit of trouble <laughs> at the very beginning of the broadcast, as, as we have been known to do here from time to time, because I keep on changing things and trying to get everything perfect. But that can be a, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge, of course. And so, uh. But I'm happy with the way that this is working now. Uh, I just had to uh, shuffle some things around as we got started. And so I'm looking forward to uh, to speaking with you. And why don't we go to our first caller. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you? 
Hey, Chris. So I'm going to make the prediction that Donald Trump's actually going to win this election, even though some states are attempting to take him off the ballot. He's just too popular. Like he doesn't show up for debates, but he wins every debate. And by a large margin, the the second place doesn't even matter. I I think that he'll overcome this and win. What what do you think? So I, I... I think that Donald Trump is going to get more votes than Joe Biden. The question is whether that's going to be enough to win the election, right? Uh, and so that's the question in my mind. I, I have no, uh, I have no doubt that that fewer people want Joe Biden to be president than Donald Trump. I have no doubt in my mind that Nikki Haley is a joke and that she has no chance of prevailing in a Republican primary, but. You know, if you take Donald Trump off the ballot in two states and then you go, you know, finagle some things in some other states and, you know, and, you know, that's what you end up with is you end up with a stolen election. They did it already. You know, they're trying to do it again. Yeah, but I don't think they'll be as successful because the amount of votes Trump's going to get this time will make it very difficult for them to steal it. Well. He is definitely more popular than he was in the past. Well, I don't know. You know, I think that they had, uh, I think that that's the idea of taking him off the ballot, right? You know, if you, if you take him off, they're not done with this, by the way, I've got a story pulled up that there's this cabal of, you know, SPLC, ACLU lawyers basically running around trying to create this outcome elsewhere. Okay. And so, you know, in the best case scenario, I mean, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who just go to the polls and just vote Democrat, and you're going to have a lot of people who go to the polls and just vote Republican, all right? And that constitutes the vast majority of your voters. And then it's, you know, it's decided around the margins by people who are not, you know, ideologically devoted to a party, right? And so you go, you take, you know, I think most of the time, I think most of the time, you know, Maine goes to the Democrat anyway, so... You know, how much difference does it make? Tough to say. Uh, Colorado, I'm I, I pretty sure Colorado is a blue state also. So, you know, how much is he losing in Colorado? I'd say, I'd say, you know, I actually don't know the answer to the question off the top of my head. But, you know, if they go do it in, I don't know, Wisconsin or Georgia, you know, they're prosecuting him in Georgia. It doesn't seem like it'd be a far-fetched thing for them to pull this off. And so, you know, you get it done in a in a... In a meaningful swing state you know you could you could you will you will change the outcome of the presidential election yeah and i think it's actually not nikki haley that would be his closer closest competitor in the republican party i think it's more uh Vivek, but there's no way he, he can win as long as trump's on the running for republican he's willing to say what needs to be done to get up there he's one that mentioned a great replacement on the debate stage. He's has mentioned uh, white people not getting their fair shake. Well, not explicitly, but it was implied based on the statements. I think he's the closest one, uh, not Nikki Haley. But there's no way he can. Well, win just in in terms of the in terms of the numbers, you know, it's Don, right now Nikki Haley is in second place behind Donald Trump. Right? She is she has now surpassed. You know, Ron DeSantis in polling and all of the all of the people who finance Republicans who hate Trump are now financing Nikki Haley. That's the that's the that's the calculus there, you know. 
And so, it, you know, if you if you see the advertisement, it's pretty funny now. So, like, you know, Donald Trump is attacking Nikki Haley, and Nikki Haley is, you know, running these response ads. I saw a couple of these things recently. Um, and so, you know, I don't think Nikki Haley is a threat to him in the Republican Party. If, if all the other... Republicans dropped out. It was just Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley. You know, Donald Trump would still beat Nikki Haley. Um, and with, you know, with with all these other idiots, you know, grabbing the other dozen votes that they're going to get between them, you know, there's no, nobody's going to beat Trump fair and square in a primary. It's not going to happen. And so it's just, you know, it's a silly exercise that, you know, their you know their motives for doing it are not entirely clear, but I don't think anybody actually expects any of them to win the primary. That's not something that that doesn't seem to be what they're spending the money on because, you know, there's no prospect of it. And so, what are they are trying to accomplish? I guess you know we may we may yet find out. But um, you know, Donald Trump's going to win the Republican primary. Taking him off the ballot in Maine and Colorado won't change that. Well, that's all I got for you. Uh, thank all you right. for taking my call. Thank you very much for making a call. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Now, um, yeah, Shanna Bellows admits a group of ACLU and SPLC alumni are working to remove Trump from the ballot. This is a story over at Revolver News. If you want to talk about insurrection, just look at what it, the left is doing in their attempts to keep President Trump off the ballot, trying to disenfranchise tens of millions of Americans who support him and his America First movement. Doesn't that seem more outrageous than strolling through the U.S. Capitol chatting with police officers? The latest Marxist to join the cause to steal the vote is, again, is Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows, who wasn't elected by the people, but instead by the state legislature. She's decided, based on her own personal feelings, that President Trump is not legally allowed to be on Maine's ballot. She claims, without any evidence whatsoever, that President Trump incited an insurrection and decided that makes him ineligible to be on the ballot. However, there's more to the story. As Ms. Bellows admits in the clip below, according to her, there is a cabal of former SPLC and ACLU alumni leading the charge to remove Trump from ballots all over the country. And uh, Secretary Bellows would love to hear about your thoughts on like our biggest threats facing uh, our democracy at this point in time. Well, what Secretary Griswold just said and named is something that was unimaginable two years ago or 10 years ago, and that is election sabotage. It is a crystal clear example of what's happening all across the country. So we need to organize to make sure we have better leaders in positions of power to fight back against that. Uh, Secretary Benson talked about uh, voter suppression and that's something that when we started our careers at the ACLU and Southern Poverty Law Center, it's fighting back about systematic, structural voter oppression, targeting specifically black and brown voters. It's rooted in white supremacy. That is something we have to continue to do work on. And Secretary Merrill talked about the For the People Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. We must have federal standards all across the country. And then finally, just to echo my colleagues, this is rooted yeah, in echo, a right. deliberate and organized campaign to discourage people from participating in our democracy. It is an attack on our very democracy itself because when everyone participates, everything that we care about, social justice, climate justice, economic justice, we win. Those on the other side are trying to discourage people from participating. That's what this really is about. We have to fight back to protect our democracy, to protect everything.
That's such a good point. Yeah, it's a good point indeed. Uh, <laughs> you know, they got to it's it's the uh, it's those evil Republicans who are trying to prevent people from participating, of course. Now, the ACLU and the SPLC are two of the most radical left-wing gr- groups in this country. They're not guided by justice, but are driven by an irrational hatred and obsession with President Trump. Shanna also wants you to believe that this is a personal decision made from a place of morals and patriotism, which is absurd. Here's what Kenakoa the Great posted on X. Democrat Shanna Bellows explains that she personally decided that Trump was guilty of engaging in an insurrection, so she unilaterally removed the leading Republican presidential candidate from Maine's ballot. She gleefully tells MSDNC, I could not, unfortunately or fortunately, wait for the Supreme Court to make a decision. After disenfranchising hundreds of thousands of Republican voters in Maine, Bellows boasts about how proud she is of Maine's voter participation rate. Quote, I smile because we were number one for turnout per capita in 2022. We're really proud of our national leadership and voter participation and citizen engagement in elections and in the democratic process. Democracy means unelected Democrats unilaterally decide that millions of Republicans cannot vote for the leading Republican presidential candidate. The United States normally sanctions banana republics for doing what Democrats are doing right now. While some radical Democrats are applauding these stunts, others who are not quite so extreme are sounding alarm bells, claiming that these futile efforts are only making President Trump stronger. David Axelrod is one of these people, and he believes that Democrats need to stop this nonsense and beat Trump at the polls before they further divide the nation. All of this is is uh, strengthening uh, him in the Republican primary. We've run this experiment. Uh, you know, he's only gained since he started getting indicted. Uh, you know, what you thought might be kryptonite for him has turned out to be battery packs. And this is a big one uh, for him. Uh, presumably, the Supreme Court will deal with it uh fairly quickly and i expect that they will leave him on the ballot and yes uh, brianna i i i have very very strong reservations about all of this i do think it would rip the country apart if he were uh, actually prevented from running because tens of millions of people uh want to vote for him i think if you're going to beat donald trump you're going to probably have to do it at the polls yeah, well, Mr. Axelrod, you might have gathered that tearing the country apart is sort of the idea. It's the whole entire point of the Democrat enterprise. It's what they do. In addition, Revolver News recently revealed that deep key, key deep state player Norm Eisen's group, CREW, was also behind the efforts to remove Trump from the ballot. It's an insightful and rather alarming piece that every patriotic American should read. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to... So please do give us a call. Let me go check on uh, our chatters here. Um, Chris, you were already disenfranchised since 1964 when they passed the American Civil Rights and the Heart Cellar Act. Yeah, I get it. Shit is fucked up. Oh, he, he, Trump is an Israeli agent, has zero interest in doing anything for white people. Well, good for you, Michael, because now you get what you want, right? You'll get Joe Biden because... He's being removed from the ballot. Those Democrats are really taking on them Jews. You should be very happy about that, I guess, because, you know, you would not want Donald Trump to be president if uh, he's working for the uh, for the Israelis. People are real like this stuff. Real. I don't know what that I don't know why people who like even, you know, who say these things would still be listening to me. I, it's it's really it's humorous. But, you know. 
That's fine. Go ahead. Keep on listening. Maybe eventually you'll learn something. It's just such a joke, you know. Do you learn nothing about people from their enemies, you know? Does the fact that the people who explicitly want to open up the borders and completely destroy you, they're going out of their way to stop this guy, and it, and it says nothing to you at all that that's going on. I can't believe that, you know, what happened to people in these circles in the last few years is really, it's, it's sick and it's sad. I don't know why, you know, I can't blame it all on Eric Stryker either. I mean, <laughs> I try, you know, it, it feels good to do that. Just pin it on one guy, but I can't, I can't say it's all his fault. You know, it's really nuts. Oh yeah. He's just some tool of the Israelis. Yeah. You know, unlike Joe Biden, who's, who's really going to take them on, you know, he's going to help those Palestinians out by sending the nuclear ships to the Middle East. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. <clears throat> now, this main Democrat who pulled this off, she met with Donald Trump, uh, I'm sorry, Donald Trump, with Joe Biden. The main official, this is from Fox News, the main official who moved to disqualify former President Trump from the state's 2024 Republican primary ballot on Thursday visited the White House this year to meet Joe Biden and previously referred to the Electoral College as a relic of white supremacy. On two separate occasions this year, one in March and another time in June, Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows, a Democrat, was invited to the White House according to White House visitor logs. Bellows' first trip came as she was after she was invited to attend a Women's History Month event held on March 22nd at the White House where she met with Biden and snapped a photo with him. Bellows took to social media to share the photo she took with Biden at the March event and described the amazing experience she had meeting the president. Birthday jaunt to D.C. for a Women's History Month event at the White House yesterday and walking around today, she added in the, po in the post to Facebook at the time. According to the Washington Free Beacon, the initial outlet to report on Bellows' trip to the White House. Bellows' trip in March to the White House was also promoted by the Secretary of State's office in a press release earlier this year in which she said it was an honor to join Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and other female leaders from across the country. It was an honor to join President Biden, Vice President Harris, and amazing female leaders from around the country to celebrate Women's History Month at the White House yesterday. Bellows said at the time, I hope to someday see the last of us first like myself. But as we continue to see these groundbreaking leaders and new positions of power, I look forward to celebrating them as part of our nation's history. Bellows' second trip came on June 6th when she traveled to the White House with more than a dozen others to meet with Justin Vail, a special assistant to Biden. That trip, according to social media posts by others who made the journey with Bellows, appears to have been organized by Issue 1 Reform, which describes itself as, quote, the leading cross-partisan political reform group in D.C. that works to unite Republicans, Democrats, and independents in one movement to fix our broken political system and build an inclusive democracy that works for everyone. Yeah. Well, that's totally not a partisan outfit working to build an inclusive democracy for everyone. That's totally not a Democrat front group. 
responding to a June 8 post to X from Dustin Zarni, a Democrat who made the trip and serves as the Onondaga County Elections Commissioner and the Democratic Caucus Chair of the New York State Elections Commission Association. Bellows wrote, yes, that was such a powerful part of our trip to D.C. Democrats, Republicans, and nonpartisan elections officials united on issues of protecting election workers and finding critical election infrastructure. Bellows, who represented Maine's 14th district in the Senate for roughly 14 for, uh, for roughly four years, I should say, has served the sec- as the Secretary of State for Maine since 2021. Shortly after taking office, Bellows penned an op-ed for a progressive platform known as the Democrat Democracy Docket. In her writing, titled Voting Rights for Our Neighbors Matter as Much as Our Own, Bellows touted her efforts to make voting more accessible and said she sought the position of Secretary of State in Maine because she was truly frightened for our democracy following the 2020 presidential election. Yeah, a lot of people were uh, frightened about democracy following the 2020 election. It was stolen. Bellows also took aim at the Electoral College in her column, claiming it is a relic of white supremacy that prevents voters from being represented fairly. In her ruling to disqualify Trump from the state's 2024 ballot, Bellows cited Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that bars people who have engaged in insurrection from running for elected office without two-thirds congressional approval. The clause was originally meant to bar former Confederate soldiers and officers from holding positions in the U.S. government or military. It was also referenced by Colorado's highest highest court in a 4-3 ruling last week, similarly barring Trump from that state's primary ballot. The decision was challenged by the Colorado GOP, setting up a battle before the U.S. Supreme Court. Bellows' affection for Biden-Harris and disdain for Trump is no secret. In an October 2020 post to social media, Bellows said that she was, quote, excited to vote for Biden and Harris. Before that, in October 2020, Bellows questioned on social media whether the obsession with the 2016 presidential presidential candidate Hillary Clinton was because, quote, people just can't deal with the magnitude of fears of what the Trump presidency brings. Bellows has faced backlash over her decision to remove Trump from the state ballot from multiple Republicans and those within her own party, including Rep. Jared Golden, Democrat of Maine. Quote, I voted to impeach Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th insurrection. I do not believe he should be reelected as president of the United States, Golden said Thursday night. However, we are a nation of laws. Therefore, until he is actually found guilty of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. Bellows defended her move while responding to Golden's criticism during a CNN interview on Friday. I reviewed Section 3 of the 14th Amendment very carefully and determined that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not say conviction in it. It says engage, Bellows said. And let's go back and keep in mind that the events of January 6, 2021 were unprecedented and tragic, Bellows continued. This was an attack not only on the Capitol and the government's officials, the former vice president, members of Congress, but an attack on the rule of law, which the Democrats are clearly all about. And the weight of the evidence that I reviewed indicated that it was, in fact, an insurrection, she added, and Mr. Trump engaged in that insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Bellows' office did not immediately respond to Fox News Digital's request for comment. You know, what I really like about this Democrat is that she really takes that Constitution thing very literally. I wonder if she does the same thing with, uh, you know, freedom of speech in the Second Amendment. I doubt it, you know, but it'd be interesting to ask. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. Let's see what else. 
There's a pretty funny piece here. Um, you know, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro have sort of been, you know, taking shots back and forth, and I think that's been pretty amusing. Um, let's see here. Voting does nothing. Trump didn't do anything for white people. Republicans hate whites, and everyone knows, says suicide is painless. Well, buddy, go act on your name. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, 2015 wasn't stolen. Trump lost because he's rather lose than go out actively court white voters. Well, uh, Donald Trump won in 2015. I think you're referring to the that that would be when the Republican primary is going on. And then there was a 2016 general election, which he did win. So I agree that that, you know, they tried their best to steal it, but they failed. And then in 2020, sir, they did definitely steal the election. And you're dummy if you don't know that. I don't know why you wouldn't know that. 217-688-1433, you like to be on the program. But if you don't know what year it all happened, no wonder you're confused, you know. <laughs> you know. I mean, who told you that? You, you what? You listen to TRS is what it is. TRS told you that they're responsible for Donald Trump losing because they thought that would make them sound cool, right? TRS was like, "Yeah, we didn't support Donald Trump, and then he lost the election. So everybody better, you know, do what we say." And you know, I I'm not trying. I've, I've tried hard not to, you know, get into the get into the mix with these guys, but. You know, that was ridiculous. They should be ashamed of themselves for saying that. And you should be ashamed of yourself for believing it because it's preposterous, right? The guy got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. And if you think that he lost the election because, you know, a bunch of people who listen to Nazi podcasts did what? They, they just stayed home and listened to podcasts instead of going to vote. And because of that, Joe Biden is president. <laughs> well, you know. That's preposterous to begin with. It's just plain stupid. It's it's just not even plausible. And so, like, and on top of that, it's like anybody who thinks that they're better off as a consequence of that is a fool. Like, you'd have to be really stupid to believe that was a good thing. But, you know, some people, they don't care about what's good and what's bad. What they care about is their own egos, right? They're like, oh, you know. TRS said their goal is to destroy the GOP and make it so they can't win elections anymore. Well, you know, I think they're figuring out that that's not going to work, you know, and now the NJP is falling apart because the obviousness of that is becoming evident, you know. They're going to meet a lot of resistance trying to do that from decent people who otherwise would have supported them. And so, you know, I think that's that the the obviousness of that failure is coming to uh, coming to be too obvious to ignore. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three, and the more you told, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let me uh, find a clip to play for you. And I'm going to take a break. I'll be right back. Da -da 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 -da. Excuse me. Oh, you know what? I, I want to get, uh, not that. I probably went, uh, 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 I want to. 
And we'll do this. One of these days it'll come up. We're almost there. Come on. Hey, do what I told you to do, you piece of garbage. Well, I think it's time we ask ourselves if we still know the freedoms that were intended for us by the founding fathers. Not too long ago, two friends of mine were talking to a Cuban refugee, a businessman who had escaped from Castro. And in the midst of his story, one of my friends turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. And this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. This is the issue of this election. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. You and I are told increasingly we have to choose between a left or right. Well, I'd like to suggest there is no such thing as a left or right. There's only an up or down. Man's old, old age dream, the ultimate in individual freedom consistent with law and order, or down to the ant heap of totalitarianism. And regardless of their sincerity, their humanitarian motives, those who would trade our freedom for security have embarked on this downward course. All right. Welcome back to uh, Surreal Politics. 217-688-1433. You'd like to be on the program in a morning until less I have to. So please do give us a call. So Tucker Carlson and uh, uh, Ben Shapiro, they've taken a few shots at each other, you might have heard. Um, ben Shapiro's uh, basically engaging in nuclear terrorism on behalf of the Israeli government because that's who he works for. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and Tucker Carlson, you know, he doesn't like that. And, you have, and you're aware, of course, that, you know, anybody who disagrees with Ben Shapiro is obviously an anti-Semite. So, you know, and that's what uh, that's how that works. Breaking Points host Cigar and Jetty recently asked former Fox News host Tucker Carlson about his opinion on conservative commentator Ben Shapiro's focus on the war in Israel. Carlson asserted that Shapiro's preoccupation with the conflict reveals his lack of concern for the United States. I've watched the entire kind of right-wing ecosystem get broiled in fundamentally what is a third-world conflict, it's asserted in Jetty after name-dropping Shapiro. Now we can say support, not support, we have criticism, etc. of that. But what explains this, like, literal allegiance to Ukraine, Israel? Why is it so many of these people don't seem to have the same level of care for actual American citizens? <clears throat> While Carlson initially discussed the war between Ukraine and Russia, he soon shifted the conversation to Israel. He stated that he had spent time in both Israel and the Arab world and expressed sympathy for those affected by recent violence. The former Fox host uh, claimed to have considered the situation from an American perspective, wondering whether it was beneficial for the United States or not. Carlson went on to criticize the intolerance and tendency for personal attacks within the discussion surrounding Israel. He highlighted the disrespect he felt when proponents of resettling displaced individuals from Gaza suggested they move to America. The conservative commentator questioned why people who believe these individuals are too dangerous to remain near them would endorse bringing them to his country. He felt offended by the disregard of this suggestion showed toward him, his family, his neighbors, and his nation. 
Quote, it was immediately, I'm a hater, I'm a bigot, or something like that. None of that registered with me, first of all, because I've been attacked for so long, but attacks that aren't true, Carlson explained. You know, if somebody said, wow, you've gained some weight this summer, I'd be like, oh, it would hurt my feelings because it's true. But if someone said you're a hater or you hate, that's not true, so I don't really care. I'm shocked by how little they care about the country, and including the person you mentioned, he added, referring to Shapiro. And I can't imagine how someone like that could get an audience of people who claim to care about America because he doesn't, obviously. Shapiro is previously criticized and clashed with Carlson over his perspective on Israel. The Daily Wire host accused Carlson of downplaying the attack on Israel and compared it to drug overdose in deaths in the United States. Shapiro also called Carlson disingenuous for suggesting that supporters of Israel sought a U.S.-led war with Iran. Disingenuous? Uh, you know, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I mean, you know, eh, disingenuous. Hey, ben Shapiro, he should know disingenuous when he sees it. He's familiar with that phenomenon. 217-688-1433. You like to be on the program. Nearly 200 names linked to Jeffrey Epstein expected to be made public. The list could be released as soon as Tuesday after deadline for objections to unsealing names of uh, passes midnight Monday. So it's coming up. Nearly 200 names connected to Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, sex trafficking conspiracy could be released by a New York judge as soon as Tuesday, exposing or confirming the identities of dozens of associates of the disgraced financier that until now have been only known as John and Jane Doe's in court papers. A deadline for objections to the unsealing of names passes at midnight on Monday, nearly nine years after victim... Uh, Virginia Giuffre filed a single defamation claim against Maxwell, daughter of the late British press baron Robert Maxwell, in 2015. That, in turn, produced the names in legal depositions. A year later, in 2016, U.S. District Court Judge Robert Sweet rejected Maxwell's motion to dismiss the case, finding that the veracity of a contextual world of facts more broad than the allegedly defamatory statements, and that Jufre was a victim of sustained underage sexual abuse between 99 and 2002. The parties settled out of court in 2017. From that wellspring came not only the names now set to be released, but a series of civil lawsuits, including Jufre's action against Britain's Prince Andrew for sexual assault and intentional infliction of emotional distress that was settled out of court without an admission of liability for a reported $12 million dollars. The prince has always strenuously denied any wrongdoing. The defamation suit also set the stage for a federal sex trafficking case against Maxwell, who was found guilty on five of six charges and sentenced to a 20-year prison sentence in December 2021. But expectations are that the release of the names from the aging defamation suit could transfer criminal charges, uh, could transfer two criminal charges, are likely overblown. Epstein killed himself while awaiting a trial in 2019, say these liars over at the Daily Mail, because that's not true. It definitely wasn't suicide. Epstein didn't Epstein himself, as goes the same. And, and, and after Maxwell's conviction in federal court, prosecutors made it clear that they considered their work done. Of course, they did. 
Still, U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska's 51-page order explaining her reasoning on whether to unseal or continue to redact the names of about 180 John and Jane Doe's offers uh, probably will probably be a serious embarrassment to many high-profile figures. Many on the list will already be publicly known as associates, employees. <laughs> this is a typo on their end. This is not me being incapable of doing a live read. Many on the list will already be publicly known as associates or employees of Epstein and Maxwell or people who had flown on his planes. It may also name Epstein's alleged victims who had been taken to homes, including a mansion in New York, a Palm Beach villa, a private island in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and a ranch outside Santa Fe. It's the names of the John Doe's that will be most scrutinized and is almost certain to include a former U.S. president, actors, academics, and notoriously the now reclusive British print. According to ABC News on Monday, Jane Doe 162 is a witness who testified that when she was 17, uh, she was with uh, Andrew Maxwell and Jeffrey at Epstein's home in the New York mansion. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton was identified by ANC News as Doe 36 and is mentioned more than 50 in more than 50 of the redacted filings, according to court records. Jeffrey made no allegations of wrongdoing by Clinton, but she maintains that she met him on the island, which Clinton has said he never visited. But personal flight logs kept by one of Epstein's pilots showed that Clinton flew extensively on Epstein's plane, including on trips to Paris, Bangkok, and Brunei. Uh, in the years after he left office in 2001. According to ABC, Jeffrey's lawyers contacted Clinton's legal representatives about a deposition, but they responded that his testimony would not be helpful. Maxwell's lawyers also rejected that idea, calling it a transparent ploy by Jeffrey to increase media exposure for her sensational stories through deposition so sideshows. But the Clintons, but Clinton's name repeatedly came up in connection with Epstein, including in a New York Magazine article in 2002, in which he said through a spokesman that Epstein was both a highly successful financier and committed philanthropist with a keen sense of global markets and in-depth knowledge of the 21st century science. So yeah, Clinton has said he cut ties with Epstein in 2005 after Epstein was accused of bringing underage girls to his Palm Beach home for sexualized massages. A federal investigation was dropped and Epstein pleaded guilty to state charges of procurement of a minor and solicitation of prostitution given a light sentence and required to register as a sex offender. After Epstein was arrested in 2019, Clinton again issued a statement saying he had not spoken to Epstein in well over a decade and has never been to the Little St. James Island, Epstein's ranch in New Mexico or his residence in Florida and knows nothing about Epstein's crimes. While the depositions may offer a closer reading of Epstein and Maxwell's interactions prior to Epstein's solicitation conviction, much of the focus is now on the financier's behavior after he was released from detention in Florida and returned to New York to rebuild his reputation. Epstein's scheduling diaries that found their way to the Wall Street Journal this year during Epstein-related lawsuits between the U.S. Virgin Islands and two U.S. banks reveal the extent that the financier continued to build his network. The bold-faced names that emerge, including included the director of the CIA, William Burns, and Catherine Rumler, White House counselor under uh, Barack Obama, alongside lesser figures, including the left-wing professor and activist Noam Chomsky, billionaire venture capitalist Reid Hoffman, and Lawrence Summer Summers, former Harvard president and director of the National Economic Council under Obama. Others included Woody Allen, Bill Gates, Thorbjorn uh, Jagland, a former Norwegian prime minister, former Israeli prime minister Ehud Barak, and former Barclays chairman Jess Staley.
An acquaintance of Maxwell and Epstein told The Guardian last year that Epstein's patterns of behavior were not significantly different pre- and post-convictions. He was not a changed man, they said, but you need to understand that in his mind he thought he'd done nothing wrong and he was entitled to behave any way he wanted if he had the money to pull it off. And so, yeah, you know, uh, the, uh, the Jeffrey Epstein thing. Do you think, you know what's funny about this? We went through this lawsuit down there in Virginia, you know, and they get all this discovery and they're dragging people into the suits and they're like this person, that person, you know, and half the exercise was they're trying to find connections to other people, right? They're hoping that somebody powerful is connected to us and they can go smear that guy in the press, right? If that had happened, do you think that that guy's name would have remained a secret? No, it would not. <laughs> but, you know, if you're running around with this, you know, pedophile who works for the Mossad and, uh, you know, you're hanging out with Hillary, uh, Bill Clinton. Well, you know, Hillary, she's got her own problems. <laughs> you get away with whatever you want. They're really concerned about that whole, you know, racism thing. Not so much about the whole, like, having sex with kids stuff. That's kind of, that's, that's old fuddy-duddy stuff. All you stuffy conservatives are so concerned about your <laughs> stuffy moral standards regarding sex. Anyway. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you guys are not going to talk, neither am I. So I'll just say thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. For tuning in to Surreal Politics, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, I think it's going to be a good one. I hope that it is. I'm really, really, really uh, I'm excited. We've been doing this, uh, this show. Well, we've been at this a little under a year now uh, on Surreal Politics. I've obviously been podcasting for a very long time. We're, we're, we're over a decade in this business now. But uh, Surreal Politics is a little under a year old. We, we, just, uh, we just got started last year. And uh, it's been a really fun exercise. Uh, I like this show in contrast to the other one because it sort of forces me to break out of certain patterns, right? And uh, I've said a long time that, you know, I used to listen to the Opie and Anthony show. Some of you have heard me say this before. I listened to the Opie and Anthony show, which if you don't know, they were marketed as like shock jocks for years. They've been they're a very popular radio show. And they used to be nationally syndicated on broadcast radio. They were on, you know, hundreds of radio stations across the country. And then they went on to satellite radio, right? And when they went over to satellite radio at first, they would do the broadcast show and then, and, and it was simultaneously broadcast on satellite. And then they would go and do another two hours only on satellite. And that part of the show was uncensored. And then they eventually just started doing the entire show on satellite and got rid of all the broadcast stations. And they did the entire show uncensored. And I'd been listening to Opie and Anthony on broadcast radio for years. And I was like, this is going to be great. Like, this is going to be awesome. There's going to be no limits on what they can do and say. Now, first of all, that was not the case. As a matter of fact, they used to frequently complain that, like, <laughs> they faced new restrictions there. Because at the, on the radio stations, they were basically just worried about what the FCC was going to do. But at 
the satellite, they were like, yeah, you could say, you know, you could curse and you can, uh, you know, throw these words out there. But we're going to have some, you know, pretty strong opinions about what you do content wise. And there's going to be a whole bunch of lawyers interfering. And famously, Anthony Cumia was fired from satellite radio for calling um, black people savages when they like attacked him on the streets of New York City. So much for that, right? You go launch satellites into outer space trying to escape the sensors and they find you there. But more to the point was that I'd actually, what I realized pretty quickly was it, it actually didn't make the show better. You know, they could curse, they could, you know, they could make certain sexual references. But they got all of that messaging across in the other show on the broadcast airwaves the whole time. They just had to say it more creatively. And that that pressure to fit into that mold forces, you know, artistic creativity. And I noticed that early on, you know, this is not something that I later reflected on later in life. It was obvious to me as it was happening. I mean, for, you know, a couple of weeks, it was a huge, a great novelty to hear them say the F word, right? But it didn't last very long. You And it, you very quickly saw that, you know, when you could just say F over and over again, it becomes a crutch and you're not, you don't have to come up with the creative output that you do to try to get through this exercise, you know? And so when I started doing my shows, I wanted to be like, an edgy radio show. I didn't want any limits. I called the first production. Well, I I tend to say some garbage podcast. It's actually not true. I did a couple of much smaller shows prior to that, but some garbage podcast is almost barely worth mentioning itself. And the other is less worthy than that. So we, you know, beginning our timeline with some garbage podcast. This was, you know, launched in uh, 2000. What was it? 2013, I guess. And uh, me and Eddie, the guy who started it, we had a lot of fun, but Eddie got kind of scared. <laughs> he didn't think anybody was going to listen, and then people started listening, and he's like, wait a second, people are actually going to you know, be paying attention to what we're doing, and I don't know if I want to do that. And so Eddie punched out. <clears throat> I kept going. And, uh, you know, it, it became obvious to me at some point in the course of this that, you know, I was forfeiting a lot by, you know, trying to do this, you know, this uncensored show that, you know, had no limits on it. I was forfeiting a lot of opportunity by that. And it had occurred to me for a long time that, you know, I should, I should do something else. And so, you know, it was a period of time where we tried to do uh, something called Outlaw Conservative. And, you know, there was not... That was not as well planned out as it probably ought to have been. It certainly wasn't as well planned as Real Politics was. Um, but, you know, you might have heard, you know, I, re- I re-released episodes 0, 1, and 2 in place of one episode of this show not so long ago. Um, and people said that it was pretty good. And and I had to agree with them, actually. I didn't realize, you know, I, I got a lot of criticism for doing Outlaw Conservative. Um but it, it wasn't bad. It actually, you know, it was, a, it was a decent show. Could have been better. Always can be. 
Um, but, you know, that was very rudely interrupted by my door getting broken down by the federal government. So we started all over again with this. And I think that this is going pretty good, too. This, you know, I like this. This forces me to, you know, sort of break out a certain, you know, thought patterns. And I think that that's important to do. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. You know, as I've gone over some of my best work since I've been home, it's easily surreal politics, right? When I talk, you know, the, the clip on beauty or beauty revisited, um, the, the piece unknown soldier, the consequences of masking, you know, those are some of the things I'm most proud of since I came home. They're all surreal politics content. It's not radical agenda. And so I think that we're off to a great start here. I'm really looking forward to what comes in the next year. Tony sends $7.77. What makes things fun isn't the freedom, but playing within a set of rules. Exactly. It's the rules that make things interesting, right? You know, I'll tell you a story. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was a little kid, I thought I'd make my own board game. <clears throat> and I thought, okay, this is good. I'm going to make the coolest board game ever. And you can imagine like, okay, so... I was like, all right, you, here's the board, and it and it's almost like a, it's almost like a monopoly board that there's you know um, squares along the edges, you know, there's spaces all along in a on a rectangle, say, uh, and it, you have six dice, and you're gonna roll the six dice, but you don't have to take your full roll. You can roll, you know, if you roll, you know, uh, what six to thirty six. <laughs> You know, you're going to have the whole board, right? And and then, but you don't have to take the whole roll. You can stop any point along that because I wanted to give you maximum freedom in the game. And then there was like, you know, you could like launch weapons at your opponent on the other side. And, you know, if you had the right, you know, if you had the weapon that would destroy him, then, you know, you could shoot it from the other side and things like this. Okay. So basically it, it, there's no game here, right? It's a child's fantasy about doing whatever he wants. And this would not sell at all if you had tried to put something like this in a store because the rules make things interesting. That's the whole entire point, you know. You go play, you, you want to go play soccer or baseball or football and you just try to do it without any structure. I mean, what's the point? It's going it, to, the pointlessness of that is going to quickly become evident, you know. And so I think that that's an important observation, Tony, and one that is not at all lost on me. You know, we got to figure out what the rules are. And, uh, you know, if we bend them a little bit, you know, you know, one of the things that, you know, here's the thing. I like the uh, the concept of edgy, right? Well, edgy implies limits. You know what I mean? If there's no limits, there's no edge. And if you're just, you know, going out and trying to say the most shocking thing that you can, eventually there's nothing shocking you know eventually the most shocking thing that you can do is rain it down you know tone it down you know that's what it gets to you get to this like cartoonish height and you just have to be like all right this is stupid and i don't think you know the radical agenda has been over the top a couple of times so i don't think we ever totally jumped the shark but anyway so we're gonna have a lot of fun this year i guess is uh what i mean to say and hopefully, uh, not just fun, but, you know, have some real meaningful moments. And I'm so grateful to all of you for making this possible, for your attention, for your uh, resources. Surrealpolitics.com slash join. you like to become a member. Surrealpolitics.com slash shop. You can buy merch. 
Uh, you can uh, you can uh, go to givesendgo.com slash SPM, and there's the uh, the the Give, Send, Go campaigns, uh, Surreal Politics Media, SPM. Uh, Edgy Chris is my cash app, and uh, you'll find all the crypto keys and whatnot at the bottom of every episode description. Uh, and so thank you very much. Uh, like, share, subscribe if you're watching on one of these video platforms. Thank you very much for tuning into Surreal Politics. Have yourselves a wonderful night. I'll see you Wednesday for the members. And we'll be back Friday cursing up a storm on a radical agenda. Happy New Year, everybody. It's, it's going to be a good time. A lot better than 2022, I'll tell you. <laughs>